Welcome to today's Community Cast. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm the pastor at Community Brookside, a new church plant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're so blessed by your presence, and we hope that today's content will bring you joy. So we have talked in church before, like forever, about the importance of the creation story, right? Like we talked about what it looks like for God to be intentional about creating all of the universe And he created us, you and I, human beings, very special because we talked about this a little while ago that we are created in the very image of God. We are made not just to look like God. I don't don't know that God looks like us, but I do believe that God has a heart like our own, right? Like I think we get a piece of the way we love and treat one another from the God spark in all of us. But we've also talked in here about how just after creation, almost immediately humanity messes up all the cool stuff that God did, right? So God goes into this incredible creation and it's ordered and he's like, this day I create this thing. Then it was evening and morning and then that's day one. And then he creates this other thing and that was evening and morning and that's day two. And and, and God just creates this beautiful order to all of creation. And then on the last day, he creates us and we mess it all up, right? but we never really get to talk about what happens almost immediately after the creation story. So the creation starts in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we recognize in Genesis chapter 3 that we have what's called the fall of humanity. But this week in our youth group on Wednesday night, we got to talk a little bit about about like what chapter 4 looks like in the book of Genesis. And it only took us weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to get from Genesis 1 to chapter 4 because... Some of us talk a lot when we get in there with a bunch of young people. Uh, and so I, I thought some really cool things were, were brought up and the kids had great questions and it really helped us to kind of dive in to what sin really looks like. And so this morning, we're gonna spend some time in here this morning on Genesis chapter four, learning about Adam and Eve's firstborn children, okay? So in order for us to get into the context of the story, if you remember the story in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, is the creation story. Genesis 1, you have this day one, day two, like the ordered creation. And then uh, Genesis chapter 2, it's a story of the creation of, of Eve, right? Like how God parades all of the animals in front of Adam and says, Adam, name them. And if you can find a mate among any of them that suits you, then that can be your mate. And of course, Adam looks at the giraffes and says, I don't think that's going to work out, Lord. And so God takes Adam and he puts Adam into a deep sleep and then pulls out his rib and from his rib fashions woman because the name woman means from man. And God looks at all of his creation and he says, all these things are what? I'm sorry? I'm I'm sorry, say that louder. Are they good? No, they're not very good. They're just good. Who said good? You can have that. There's one for you. Oh, good. Okay, I think I just broke something. Did you say good too? Good, 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 good. That's an awful throw. I apologize. So God created all the things and he said, this is good. And on the sixth day, he created us. And there's something distinct about, he says, for us as humanity. What does he say about us, Ben? We are very good. All right, I'm going to hit a child in the face. I'm sorry. Nice. Good catch. Ben plays baseball, everyone. Being made very good is a distinction from the rest of creation. God makes us like him and he says, we are very good. 
We were specifically designed to be God's friends. We have rational thought processes. We can create things on our own, right? We have arts that we do as human beings. We can express ourselves through our fingertips and through our voices, through our, our written word. And then God also gives us free will. And in Genesis chapter three, we see that Adam and Eve were tempted into disobeying God as a means to attain even more power and knowledge. Adam and Eve used their free will to directly choose against what God had asked them not to do, right? And they were tricked by a what? A serpent. Who said that first? We're going to give it to Valerie. So he was tricked by, or Adam and Eve were tricked by a serpent. And they tempted the first human beings to eat from the what? What? The, the, tree, the tree of um, wisdom. Close. Knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so I'll give that one to you. That is a Rice Krispie treat. Uh, so she doesn't play baseball. All right. Uh, so they eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, right? And so what are the three major punishments that God prescribes for humanity and uh, the serpent as he kicks them out? Number one... God says what about you, ladies? Yeah, it's going to stink when you try to have babies. It's going to hurt. It wasn't going to hurt, but now it hurts, right? Like, I don't know. That was one. What else? What does he say about Adam and Eve, or Adam? Yeah, you're going to toil in making the land productive. And then what does he say to the serpent? You're going to lose your feet, bro. <laughs> so the serpent becomes what we think of as a snake. And it says, you're going to eat dust for the rest of your life. And there will be enmity between you and man through the offspring of humanity and your offspring. You will constantly be striking at his heel and he'll be stepping on your head. But the last part of Genesis 3 sees the Garden of Eden, the place where God dwelt with humanity. And he walked with Adam and Eve becoming a forbidden land that would be lost to history for all time. The Garden of Eden was shut off. It was locked up. And then Adam and Eve were forced to go elsewhere to try to eke out a life without God's personal and very real presence being with them. This was a great and terrible punishment that affects each of us to this day. God no longer walks with us in, in a physical presence anymore. God is more spiritually with us. And when we pick up this morning in Genesis chapter four, we see that while the sin of, Adam, sin of Adam and Eve was incredible and great and caused some pretty serious repercussions throughout all time, God didn't abandon them. God still loved them. And while their relationship with God became very different because of the sin that was now in, you know, kind of bred into humanity, God was always with them. God never left them, but instead withdrew his personal presence. God no longer walked with them physically, but he was never gone. I want you to hear me when I say that. But in chapter four, life goes on for Adam and Eve. The story continues in Genesis chapter four. So I want us to read this together today. This comes from Genesis chapter four, verses one through 18. If you have a Bible, pull it out and read along with us. If you don't, you can read it on the screen. This is, it's a good story, okay? So Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. 
In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face became downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. <coughs> then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. It's important to get all that in there, just so you know. So when we look at the story of the beginning of God's people, we see that the focus shifts from Adam and Eve, God's first people, to their progeny, their offspring, their, their sons. We start out with the mention that Eve gives birth to her son. And what's his name? Firstborn son name is what? Cain. And what is the first thing she does whenever she gives birth to Cain? Gives praise to God because God helped. With the help of God, I have given birth to a man. So the Hebrew in this is really interesting because it shifts kind of the way we read it. And I'm going to read this to you in Hebrew the best that I can with my Oklahoma accent. And here's what it says in the Hebrew. It says, Kan iti is et Yahweh, which means, literally translates into, I have acquired a man from Yahweh. Yahweh has given to me this man. So while she and her husband knew that they played some sort of role in having this child, God was the one responsible for giving them their son. And then it says later on, she conceives and gives birth to a second son, and his name is Abel. Abel, right? So the very next thing we see is that Cain and Abel are grown up, right? There is no history of their relationship together. We don't hear, you know, about the weaning process or, you know, baby showers. We don't see any of that. We just see that Cain and Abel now are working in their respective jobs. There's a lot skipped, we jump right into their careers, right? And then we see that the order is reversed. So even though Cain was the firstborn and Abel the secondborn, we start off hearing about what Abel does. What does Abel do? He, he raises the flocks, right? And we don't know what kind of flocks. It's not that clear. Could be sheep, could be goats, could be a flock of rabbits. Do rabbits flock? I don't know. Probably not. 
but he raises the flocks. So he's in charge of like milking the goats and making sure they have pasture land, right? I don't think it's all that too difficult of a job. But then it jumps back to Cain. And what is Cain responsible for? Working the soil. He's responsible for, so like all the fruits, all the vegetables, that's what Cain is responsible for. So Cain worked the land. And as a connection to the the creation story in Genesis chapter three, we can see that the punishment for Adam as a result of his sinful disobedience to God is that he would have to work in the soil to grow the food, right? But have we heard Adam doing that yet? No, not yet. I noticed this conversation is pretty interesting about Adam that it's not him working the soil, it's Adam had children and then Cain works the soil. And that is exactly why my wife and I had children that we don't have to do all the work. We want them to do the work, right? (laughs) Let me be very clear. Those kids run our household. We we do all the work to serve them. But here's what's interesting. So the story of Genesis chapter three at the very, very end, 23 and 24 says this. So the Lord God banished him, he's talking about Adam and Eve specifically, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It was Adam's responsibility to work the soil. But we never actually hear about that happening. So Cain, the firstborn, is the one who's doing all the hard work. And for thousands of years, like we have been raising babies to make society easier for all of us, right? Our children are not just to be a burden on us. They're to help around the house. They're to participate in the livelihood of all of society. This is how we've grown as humanity. This is why we no longer have to plant crops by hand, right? We don't have to hoe like really long, you know, uh, channels that we drop seeds in and have to bury them all up. And because we have children now that we do this together and collectively the burden is easier for us. Do any of you in here come from farming families? What did you farm? Well, we had a ranch. We um, <coughs> corn, soybeans, raised pigs, had about 300 Hang on, say that again. Corn, soybeans, yeah. pigs, and what else? Cattle, about 300 Okay. So m- more of like a ranch. But does anybody do specifically farming? Anybody else's family in here come from a farm? Yeah, okay. Big gardens are a little bit different. Um, but, but think about how much the world has changed, right? So if you think about the difference between Cain and Abel, and Abel is, you know, out there hanging out with the, the cows and sheep and goats, right? And he's basically moving them along to, from one pasture to another. He's making sure they're not attacked by wolves or bears or whatnot. Uh, he's probably helping deliver some of the cattle as they uh, birth their young. And, and that's what he does, Compare that to the back-breaking work of gardening. Not gardening, I'm sorry, but like farming, right? Because if you think about it, only in the last 100 years has farming become relatively easy for us. And let me be clear, it's still not easy, but it is compared to what it used to look like, right? So I imagine Cain getting up before the sun and like, I, I don't know what kind of tools they had back then, but it certainly wasn't a tractor, right? So he's 
hoeing out the land. He's creating these berms for plants to grow in. He's planting seeds by hand. He's bent over most of the day. Then he has to water these seeds. So he's bringing water in like some sort of pre-plastic bucket. I can't imagine what that life looked like. And he's watering his crops. It is intense, the labor he put in to creating food for his family. It wasn't easy. He didn't go put diesel in his tractor and then spend a few hours driving up and down a few rows and then having the tractor automatically plant the seeds and then flipping a switch to turn on that automatic watering system. You've seen those out in especially Western Oklahoma, the big circles. If you look from Google Maps, you can see what places get watered. It is a very different lifestyle then than it is now. Cain was doing the work that Adam had been condemned to do. Adam's kids helped lighten the load, and while Cain did the majority of the hard work to provide sustenance for the family, Abel got to just kind of hang out with sheep, right? And let me be clear, I don't think that was easy either. I'm just painting a really different picture, okay? And then in time, Cain brings an offering to God. So let's look at what that means. So Cain's offering was the fruits of the soil. It was what Cain worked for. It was what Cain knew how to do. What does scripture actually say about Cain's gift? I'll tell you. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering for the Lord, period. That's the extent of it. So what do you notice? Some, yeah. I mean, you, you can't bring all, right? Because then you have nothing. No, but he picked and choose. Did he? I don't know. It just says he brought some stuff to God. Eventually. Eventually. When it was time, he brought some stuff. What, what do you notice, Ben? Um, that said that Abel had brought a big fat portion. Well, so we're going to get to that. You're, listen, you're reading ahead. <laughs> you're jumping into what I'm jumping into. It's kind of sloppy, right? So this conversation about Cain is that Cain just, I, I brought an offering to God and it was some of the fruits of the soil, right? And so when I read that, I think obviously it's peaches because it's fruits of the soil, but it could have been anything. It was probably like grain and pieces of corn and who knows, right? But he brought some of it and he presented it to God. Here you go, God, here's some stuff. But then scripture, as Ben so aptly pointed out, says this, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain's and his offering, he did not look with favor. Do you notice the difference, right? Cain brought some stuff and Abel brought what? Fat portions, fat portions of what? The firstborn, right? It was clear that Abel was significantly more intentional about his offering to God than Cain was. Cain just brought some stuff. Abel brought the best, right? How many of you are barbecuers? Like you either love to grill or smoke, like hard yes, hard, hard yes, right? So when you smoke barbecue meat, you don't want all fat, right? You're not taking these chunks of chub and like covering them with your spices because no one's going to eat that, right? 
but you're also, when you smoke meat, you're not trying to bring meat that has no fat at all. One of my favorite cuts is brisket because brisket has this perfect balance of fat and meat and it's juicy if you cook it right. And it's got flavor because the fat portions of brisket are fantastic. So I imagine that, that Abel is bringing like the briskets and he's bringing the tenderloins and he's bringing the ribeyes to God and he's saying, take God, this, it all comes from you, I'm giving it back. He's intentional about bringing God his best. Cain gave God some fruit. Abel gave God the best. So when I was younger and I had read this story and been taught in Sunday school about this story, I'd always thought that God just really liked barbecue more than God liked vegetables, right? And if you don't read this clearly, that's what you get. You get a God who loves meat and hates vegans, right? That's not what scripture is saying. Cain was haphazard about his gift to God and Abel was intentional about his and God looked with favor on the gift that was given intentionally. And then what happens in the story? So we move past the offering. We see that Cain gets upset and he feels like God is slighting him. But he doesn't blame God. And he certainly doesn't blame himself. Who does he blame? His brother. And this sounds familiar to us in our time because... Even today, no one really takes responsibility for their own actions, right? This is not a new thing. The very first part of our scripture, people are not taking responsibility for the way they act or the way they treat people. So I can imagine the anger welling up inside of Cain because of his work into planting and caring for all those fruits and vegetables. Like I worked really, really hard and I, I brought some to God. Why is this not enough? It's not enough because his heart wasn't in the right place. Cain thought he was doing a very good thing by offering God some of his harvest. But the difference is God doesn't want some of our stuff. He doesn't want some of our time. He doesn't want a piece of our hearts. God in this story is showing us from the very beginning that his expectations are higher than that. God wants our best. God wants our best. You hear that? And so in the story, God knows the condition of Cain's heart. And God says, oh gosh, I better step in before something bad happens. So he speaks to Cain directly and he sends him a warning about his anger. God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And we know that God knows, right? God is, in a teaching moment as parents, you often ask your kids because you want them to verbalize why they're being ridiculous. That's God right here. He's teaching us like us. What, what are you doing, Cain? God continues, if you do what's right, will it not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And then Cain immediately ignores everything cool that God just said. He's angry at his brother for this perceived acceptance of his offering. And we don't know what this looked like. We don't know if God like sent this miraculous fire from heaven and consumed the barbecue and it smelled like smoke. 
We don't know. We don't know if God left Cain's, or sorry, if, if God left, yeah, left Cain's offering of grain just sitting somewhere where he left it. We don't know. But there was something that happened in Cain's own mind that said, God likes you more than me. And he wasn't going to put up with it. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And the same thing is true for us today. If we don't control our anger, sin is right there, ready to take pounce on us. Our anger will lead us to do all kinds of incredibly awful things if we're not in control of the way that we behave. Have you ever been so angry at someone that you said something bad about them? I think all of us can probably, yeah, just, just not. I think we can all say yes. Have you ever been so angry at someone that you plotted out something to bring retribution on them? Have you ever been so angry at somebody that you just wish they were dead? That's not good. <laughs> That's how mad Cain felt in this moment. He felt so angry that God liked his brother's offering more than his own that he had to put an end to it. So Cain lured his brother out into the field that he worked and there he attacked him and he killed him. And then the next moment, God came calling, right? And isn't it just like God to show up when we've done something stupid to call us into accountability, right? Hey, Cain, um, where's your brother? Hey, Matt, why did you flip that guy off in traffic? I don't, I don't do that, by the way. I just say really, really mean things, screaming them really loudly in my car when I'm all alone. Hey, Tina, why did you talk bad about your neighbor? Hey, Margaret, why did you do that thing you did, right? Like God calls us out in the midst of our sins if we're willing to hear him. And he does that in this moment. Cain, where's your brother? And then we hear that phrase that we've heard so many times, right? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then immediately the Lord says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out for me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground. And I've mentioned it in here before and I'm gonna mention it again. This question that, that Cain raises, am I my brother's keeper? It's a question that all of us continually face. Are we our brothers and sisters keeper? And I think the rest of the 65 books of our Bible says, yes, you are. But then sometimes we just feel like we're so gutsy. Am I, am I my brother's keeper, God? Am I supposed to care about what's going on with other people? Do I need to care what's going on with my brother? Do I need to worry about the life of my sister? All of scripture is a resounding yes to that question. We are our brothers and our sisters keepers. We're asked to look out for each other and to love one another throughout the remainder of scripture. And I wanna to talk to you a minute about the sin 
that shows up here in this story. The story about a man and how he grows so angry and cold enough to kill his brother, it stems from one single sin. It's the sin of, eh, that's good enough. The difference between, eh, I guess I'll bring God some fruit of the ground and I will bring God some of the best portions of the choicest meat in my flock is a very different correlation here. And we still suffer from this apathetic, non-sacrificial giving to God in our very day. We don't show up to church on the morning, uh, on Sunday morning and say, God, I can't wait to give you my praise and worship. We show up here and we say, what's for lunch afterwards? We show up here and we love seeing our friends and we, don't get me wrong, I think that we, we love to sing praise and we love to hear God's story. But I think oftentimes when we walk through the doors in the back, there are other things on our heart that pull our attention away from God. God doesn't want your least, your leftovers, or your last. God wants your best. Be here fully. The story of Cain and Abel is just as much about murder as it is about cautioning all of us to bring God what God deserves. I would argue that if Cain would have brought God his best, there wouldn't have been that self-doubt that his offering was not good enough for God. And we do the same thing today, right? Sometimes we see people who have it all, right? You look at them, what, what do they have that I don't have? God, why don't you bless me like you've blessed them? Or what's worse than that, we show up in church every Sunday morning and we have these expectations of God. God, bless me, pour out your blessings on me. God, just, just, just fill me with your Holy Spirit. Bless me, bless me. Like that seems to be the prayer of America, bless me. And we show up and we don't bless God by doing what God has asked us to do giving of ourselves, our tithes, our offerings, our hearts to him to make the world a better place. We give God our bare minimum and then we expect God to rain down his blessings on us just because we show up. And the story of Cain and Abel proves to us that it's not about just showing up. It's about giving to God what God deserves. And so this story starts with Old Testament vibes, but it doesn't end with Old Testament vibes because Jesus shows up and he goes through the same kind of situation where humanity is still kind of unrepentant of the sin of giving God their bare minimum. And Jesus shows up in Jerusalem as he's preparing to go to the cross. And when Jesus is in Jerusalem in the temple, he notices that the most self-important and the wealthiest of his Jewish brothers and sisters just barely show up for God. In Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44, it says this, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything 
all she had to live on. So I have to stop here and I have to tell you, God doesn't want your last dollar. If you're struggling right now paying rent, if you're struggling right now with bills, if you've got college to pay for, if you, God wants you to be taken care of, but God doesn't want your sloppy leftovers. He doesn't want your very last dollar. He wants your first dollar and then you can spend out of the rest, right? I promise you that the widow in the story isn't, she, she's not trying to make a point in the way that she gives. She wasn't trying to proportionately outgive everybody else. She just knew that she was called to give what God asked for her best. And so she throws it in. And she sets an example for us that God doesn't want our seconds. He doesn't want our bare minimum. And every time that we bring God our bare minimum, I guarantee that God's heart breaks just a little bit more. So we talked about it this morning already. As we who call ourselves people who are created in the image of God, our Father, we need to be better about honoring our Father. I'm gonna challenge all of us to stop showing up half-heartedly and instead come into the house of the Lord ready to give God our praise, ready to give God our offerings, ready to serve God and whatever that looks like. Let's give God our best. Let's give God all of us. Today and always, may each of us vow to stop just showing up empty-handed and empty-hearted to worship. May we each be willing to give God or give to God out of our love for him rather than giving to him out of his expectations. May each of us today and always find a way to bless Jesus for the blessings that he showers on us day in and day out. May we all remember every day that God gave his very, very best for us in his son Jesus so that we can see what it looks like to give our very best back. When we as a collective church show up with our very best for God, I promise that God is gonna change the world through us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Community Cast. We hope that you were blessed by today's conversation. If you'd like to know more about Community Brookside, please feel free to visit us at our website, communitybrookside.com or find us on your favorite social media outlet. We hope to hear from you soon. Be blessed.